All right, this morning is Sunday. It's May 27th, 2007. It's Memorial Day weekend. And our message this morning is a pocket full of rocks. Pocket full of rocks. Turn with me to Psalm 138. Tell me when you're there. While you're turning there, there's an author named Bruce Larson. Not Bob Larson, but Bruce Larson. I like something that he said in a book called My Creator and My Friend. Well, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? My Creator and My Friend. That was the title of his book. He said, Quite often, the absence of success is the only true mark of a genuine God calling. <laughs> How about that? I bet you haven't thought about that very often. You say, well, if God called it, then it'll work. Well, God called all kinds of things that didn't seem to work for a very long time. We're still waiting for all Israel to be saved. And that statement's been around quite a while. Abraham waited decades for his children when God called them. We serve a God who gains glory by you showing trust when it doesn't look like it's going to work. But this morning, I want to offer you some hope along those lines. You're in Psalm 138, starting in verse 6. Though the Lord is on high, He looks upon the lowly. Come on, saints, that's good news, huh? But the proud He knows from afar. I don't want you to think if you're proud that He doesn't know you. He does. He knows right where you live. (laughs) Just like He knew where Herod lived and some other people. But if you want to be intimate with God, there's only one way to get there. Lowly and contrite in heart. Watch this. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the anger of my foes. With your right hand, you save me. Here's the key verse. The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Your God calling. The moment you were saved, Ephesians teaches that God had good works prepared in advance for you to do. Romans calls you the workmanship of God. How often have you talked about my calling? The words my as if you possessed the calling. My purpose. I preach about it all the time. David here says that it is God's purpose in your life. The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Your love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not abandon the works of your hands. Saints, you were born into a world that desperately needed help. Can we all say amen to that? Have you experienced some hurts and hardships along the way? Of course you have. That's why we're here. We're supposed to be a catalyst for change. Have you ever felt like a failure? The reason that you were here, you're not doing well with. I want you to hear something. The Lord says it is His purpose in your life, and He will not abandon the works of His hand. It's not your calling. It's not something that you own. It's not something that you control. It is something that you need to learn to ebb and flow in, But it is His purpose, and it is Him who will fulfill that purpose. That's freeing. When I start to realize that I don't have to conjure up a church, I don't have to do that. I don't have to really work hard and figure out what to preach on. It's God's job to deliver all of those things to me, and my job to be receptive. And I found out something. It comes from simply being who you are. Once you know what His purpose in your life is, all you have to do is be obedient to who you are. And how easy is that? 
Most of the church's problems come when we look to our left and we like who they are better than we like who we are. That's where most of our problems come from. When we compete with each other, when we compare our lives and theirs, and we think, well, you know, Lindsay's got it together. I wish I was more like her. I'm not talking about a godliness that spurns one another on towards good works. I'm talking about a self-loathing that permeates the church. When you look in the mirror, if you don't like what you see, you have an unbiblical view of yourself because the Bible says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. If when you look at a cosmopolitan magazine, you see something that you wish you were, you have an unbiblical view of yourself. Now, it's easy when we talk about the church looking at the world. This gets much more difficult when you start comparing churches with other churches and leaders with other leaders. Turn with me to 1 Samuel. Pocket full of rocks. Y'all awake or have I already put you to sleep? Andrew's awake. He's with me. And he's new here. Dear God, they'll call your name in this church? Yes, we will. 1 Samuel 17. Oh, that girl's fast. Fast, fast. I know most of you have this memorized, but so that you don't intimidate the person on your left and right, go ahead and turn there. I'm joking, those of you that are guessing. In 1 Samuel 17, I want to start with a very familiar story, and there's a problem in doing that. As I begin to tell you a story that you've heard preached on a thousand times, maybe ten thousand times, depends on just how old you are, Judah. You can tune me out. You can think, oh, I already know all about this. This morning, I want to encourage you to take a fresh look at something. Does that surprise you that I have an unorthodox view of something? Okay, it doesn't surprise Craig. The rest of you are already asleep. David said to Saul, this is the 32nd verse. David said to Saul, by the way, what chapter are we in? That's right, this is the David and Goliath chapter. We have two, we have a valley in northwest Israel, two mountains, and the Philistines are on one mountain and the Hebrews are on the other. And in the valley comes down every day uh, obnoxious giant, right? Somebody made Cody look small. And he challenges all Israel and they're quaking in their boots. Well, David shows up. The 32nd verse. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Somewhere in David's heart began to rise a trust that is unnatural. We might even call it supernatural. Beyond what would be normal. It would not be normal for a young man with no battle experience, to want to go fight a seasoned veteran who happened to be a giant in front of his whole nation. I had the misfortune one time of using my face as a battering ram for a young man's fist in front of my entire school. That's not something you sign up for. You don't wake up one day and think, you know, I think I will go out on a field of competition where I'm grossly outmatched and see how it works in front of my closest friends. You don't usually do that, do you? No, if you were going to do that, you would want to go somewhere in secret and kind of test the waters, wouldn't you? Yeah? Okay, so this is a supernatural call in his life. Saul replied, You are not able to go out and fight this Philistine. You are only a boy, and he has been a fighting man from his youth. What do you think of Saul's observation? 
Let's pretend for a moment. Let's roll back the clock to 1000 B.C. Let's think for a second. Saul is scared himself to go fight Goliath. Do you think Saul would be scared to fight David at this point? No. See, men do this. We size each other up. We don't mean to, right? Somebody comes in and they're very proud and all puffed up and a normal thought that goes through a guy is, oh, he's nothing. Why does he think that? That's a normal... Yeah. And, and it's funny because... Men's estimation of their own abilities is often grossly inaccurate, right? Your mind ever told you you could do something that your body was not capable of doing? Well, just wait. It'll get there. So Saul's looking at David thinking, yeah, he's going to go fight Goliath. I, I could whip this boy like a... bounce on him like a pogo stick. He's going to fight. You can't do this. Isn't that a normal response? that people will have when God bursts something in your heart? When you begin to discover your purpose on the earth, if you immediately think, well, of course I can do that, there's far too much pride in you for God to use you. Or you got the wrong purpose. If there's a certain level of fear, if there's often an intrepidation of what it means that you're called, you're probably in the right vein. Watch this. We're not talking about David today, I promise. It just so happens we have to start there. Verse 34, But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. Oh, there's a convincing argument. When a lion or bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. You ever interviewed for a job and they said, You know, Chandler, why, uh, what, what makes you think you're qualified for this position? And the God's honest truth is, <laughs> There's nothing in my experience that would remotely qualify me for this position. But you don't say that, right? You have to come up with something. So you say something along the lines of, well, the variety of experiences that I've had have given me the uh, adaptability to be able to absorb lots of information and be able to perform, right? And you hope they have no idea what you really said is, there's nothing in my history that should make you think I can do this. Y'all have never been there. I'm the only one that's interviewed for jobs way out of my league. I've never been scared to shoot for the stars, I guess. This is not a hugely convincing argument. But Saul's not the one with the God calling. David is the one with the God calling. And to him it seems perfectly reasonable. A bear was bigger than me, stronger than me. It was my job to kill it, so I did. You know, a lion's bigger than me, stronger than me. It's my job to kill it, so I did. Look at verse 36. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. I love David's reasoning. David's heart is not, oh, I'll kill him easily like I killed the bear because I'm skilled. Dude, you don't know what I can do. <laughs> How many times have you been around, a, especially young men, they, we do this a lot, and they kind of give off this vibe like, oh, you don't know me. You don't know what I'm capable of. See, the reason you don't esteem me, you don't, you're not worried about talking to me like that is you don't know where I've been. Y'all never met a guy like that? Never met a guy like that in this room even? David says, hey, look, I've had experiences that have prepared me for this. Is it important that Saul's convinced? Not really. But this displays David's rationale. God has prepared me for this moment. He sees it as destiny. It's not a problem for him because God has arranged it. And watch. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion 
and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Now, those of you that know me know this is one of my very favorite verses because it shows a building trust that David had learned to take every obstacle and see it as an opportunity to overcome. I even put it on the wall over there. But that's not what our message is about this morning. Saul said to David, Go and the Lord be with you. How genuine do you think this is? Huh? Saul says, Go and the Lord be with you. And then he probably turns to his court and says, Dude, somebody is going to be destroyed. Y'all need to see this. Kind of like your friends in high school that pushed you into a circle of two guys fighting. Said, hit him, hit him, hit him. Oh my God, he did it. You know? Saul didn't expect this young man to win. But Saul doesn't want to go. Sometimes in life, what God has called you to do will seem impossible to everybody else. Cody told me he felt called to be a preacher. I don't have a problem seeing that in Cody, but others might. That's a good sign that it's possible that it's God. Because when Cody becomes everything that God's called him to be, and that starts today, others can look and go, wow, and marvel at God. God takes unlikely things and does extraordinary things with them. That's what He does. But that's still not our topic. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. David tries to walk around in Saul's armor, and y'all that have heard me teach on this know you can't wear someone else's mantle. You can't wear someone else's anointing. Not what we're preaching about. We're not preaching about Saul's false motives today. Why did Saul want him to wear the armor? <laughs> well, it was David who killed him, but he used my sword. I mean, if he had had Chandler's sword, never would have worked. If it had Matt's sword, wouldn't have worked. It was really my sword. I mean, after all, anybody could have killed that guy if they had my sword, right? I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took a staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from a stream, and put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag with his sling in his hand and approached the Philistine. David was in touch with who he was. David was not a warrior, at least not in the sense that a gladiator would be. David was not trying to be Saul or anybody else. David was in touch with what God had called him to do. He was a shepherd in Israel. And so he took the tools of a shepherd. There's a lot to be learned from finding out who you are in Christ. And I have learned that when you teach people who they are in Christ, you don't have to teach them how to act. It's just the process of who they are. Have you all heard me say that before? All right. Well, let's talk about the smooth stones for a moment. How do stones get smooth? Where did he pick them up? I've been to this place and I've seen streams that are still in the area. And it's a really interesting feeling. You know something happened great in this place. David reaches down into a stream and he picks up five smooth stones. Now usually when this kind of message is preached, what people are talking about is the way stones get smooth and how you want to be a smooth stone. And that's part of it and it's worth covering. So I'll tell you about that. But that's not where we're going today. Smooth stones get smooth from staying in the flow of a river. 
they bump into what is around them and they tumble along through the river that is symbolic of God's presence in this analogy until they bump into enough to where they have achieved a shape that is worthy of their design. They get smooth from the process of friction. The Bible says as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. This is why we get together in a church-type environment so that Chandler can rub shoulders with Lisa and so that Judah can rub shoulders with Adam. And in our interaction with each other, there's a smoothing out process that occurs. And what we are waiting for is for the shepherd to reach down into the stream that is the flow of God's Spirit and say, Ah, Andrew's ready. Brandon's ready. Put them cold for a purpose. Chosen because of their shape, their design, and put in his bag. Where would a shepherd carry his bags? Anybody know? Goes over his shoulder and rests just under his arm, right next to his heart. The time that you have been shaped and smoothed by the flow of the Spirit and placed into the shepherd's bag, you're in darkness. <laughs> That's not what you were expecting, is it? Called, excited. Look, I'm being taken out of the stream. Does everybody see that I'm called? I'm anointed for a purpose. And then put in an area where you don't really see what is going on. And you don't really understand what's next. But you learn to listen for the shepherd's heartbeat. When he gets excited, you get excited. When he is mellowed out, you get mellowed out. And you learn to hear the way he breathes, the way he talks, the way that he moves. Because he chose you out of everything else in that stream for a specific purpose. Then one day he reaches in and boy, you get excited. But is it dizzying? swings you around and around and around. You don't know your world is turning upside down. And He launches you on your mission, your target. What were these stones' targets? Goliath. To sink deep into the heart, forehead of an enemy and knock down a giant. Why did these stones have to be smooth? You needed to make sure that the direction that that shepherd sent you off in, you could fly straight and hit your target. The word Torah, by the way, is meant to guide us in our calling. It's meant to make sure that we hit that which the shepherd aims us at. It comes from the Hebrew word yara. It means to shoot accurately. God put things in our lives, lives trying to make sure that we would hit the target He intended for each of us. Let me ask you something, though. How many stones did He take out? How many did it take to kill Goliath? How disappointed are you when you look around and you see other people are knocking down giants but you're still hanging out in the shepherd's bag in darkness not real sure what's going on? We refer to these years in my life as the Lafayette years. Eric's been experiencing them here recently and truthfully, anybody who's called experiences them. Talk about these smooth stones for a minute. If a smooth stone is somebody who has been shaped by the Spirit of God, right? That's a good thing. In Christ, you, you want to emulate that, don't you? But what happens when you look at the purpose and design of somebody, I don't know, let's say Smith Wigglesworth, and you go, man, this is how God shaped him. This is how God designed him. And you're excited about that, but to the point that you forget your shape and your design might be for something different. God picked, or in the story, David picked five stones that were for the purpose of killing giants. It just so happened Goliath had brothers. You find that out later in Scripture. For that purpose, if every stone in the stream tried to be just like those five stones, they would be missing their purpose. 
Turn with me real quickly to Isaiah 57. I have found in the church that something happens with these smooth stones that God never intended. I'm not there, Steve. You are fast. In Isaiah 57... Actually, let me. is it okay if I read you a quote first? A quote from a Jewish source that predates Jesus? Would that be okay? You all like those? I've been sharing that kind of stuff with you a lot. This comes from the Ethics of Our Fathers, which is a tractate in the Mishnah. Tell me if this sounds like wisdom to you. If you have learned much Torah, do not take credit for yourself. It was for this purpose that you were formed. Does that sound like knowledge puffs up and love builds up? Does that sound like lots of other New Testament Scriptures you know? One of the things that happens to people is they realize that they were formed for a specific purpose. God intended for you to be proud, to be excited about that, but not to be lifted up. It was God's work. And as you lift men up, something happens to them. Others begin to put an inappropriate level of respect and love them that turns into an admiration that excels beyond admiration into almost a demagogue type status. How many people do you know that have driven somewhere to hear a great healing evangelist speak? A few of you. Because God's not able to heal in your home? Is He not able to heal in your home? How many people do you know that want their whole lives to be just like pastor so-and-so to the point where they've dressed like them. They've found out what kind of Bible he has and they have that kind of Bible where they like the kind of music he likes, the kind of food he likes. It makes me begin to wonder, if God had wanted this, why did God not just create an assembly line? Look what happens with the smooth stones in Isaiah. In Isaiah 57, starting in verse 6, the idols among the smooth stones of the ravines are your portion. They are your lot. Yes, to them you have poured out drink offerings and offered grain offerings. In the light of these things, I should, should I relent? God is upset because what is useful in one purpose a smooth stone to knock down a giant is not useful in another purpose. And if what we do is we see one person that we think is successful, maybe they are purpose-driven. And all we want to do is figure out how to be just like that purpose-driven person or any other fad that goes through the church. We have idolized something other than our God. We want to be just like someone else that was shaped for a specific purpose that we don't share. Now, if you don't think that I'm, I'm preaching or talking to you, something's wrong. Because I can tell you, in the church today, people want to be worship leaders. Why? Because worship leaders are on a stage in front of everybody. They want to be great pastors. In fact, in this town, they might want to be an Osteen. There's nothing wrong with Joel Osteen. I want you all to know that. But that's Joel Osteen's purpose. That's not your purpose. We need to get comfortable in our own skin, not wanting to wear someone else's smooth armor, learning who we are. And once you start to do this, something beautiful happens. 
You realize that the diversity of God in the creation glorifies God. And that your own unique little quirks, your personality traits, are something God designed to be there. He didn't want Beth to be just like Jennifer. He did not want that. I think Jennifer's wonderful. In most ways, I want all of you to imitate her. But Jennifer's personality was uniquely designed by God to accompany me performing this task. Beth has a different task. We need to learn the difference between imitating someone's way of life and imitating them. Do you understand when we talk about being covered in the dust of the rabbi, learning the rabbi's yoke, following him, learning from him every moment? We still did not want you to be that rabbi. There's already one of him. We wanted you to take that teaching, those things, and magnify it in your own unique way. What was the attitude that Luke 17 taught? It was an unworthy servant. Do you remember the quote? It says, When you have finished all of these things, you should turn and say, We are only unworthy servants who have done our duty. What's wrong is so many times pastors who have done a good job, knock down, kill the giant, became kind of excited that God used them to do that. And there's nothing wrong with that. And other people give them an inappropriate level of praise. And they say, no, stop it. Stop it. Y'all don't do that. Stop it. You know how this happens? It happens right after I walk off of a stage. I'm insecure about what I taught. And I say, hey, was that a message? Did y'all like that? No, don't praise me. Don't do that. And it becomes a way of life. And pretty soon, people are walking around holding up Christian leaders like they would a high school. Mine's better than yours. Look at my... Look. Look how many people are here. Look at all the facilities we have. That's one kind of stone. God's got others. There's supposed to be a whole pocket full of rocks. Do you think those five were the only five in David's bag? Only if all he was ever going to do is kill giants. But sometimes he needed to kill a bear or a lion. I was watching a show about pirates the other day. They load their cannons, sometimes with very smooth, round projectiles. Why? Because it flies right where they wanted it to go. Other times, squarish projectiles with chains between them. Because they flew kind of like a knuckleball through the air. Nobody knew quite where it would land, but it tore up everything in its path. Eric Hill might be a smooth stone designed for precision and accuracy. I might be a blunt object designed to destroy everything in the past. There's a uniqueness in the creation that is supposed to be there. And when you learn to embrace this, you will quit loathing who you are and start honoring the God who made you like you are. Now, we're life-changing ministries. I tell you every day, you must change. But what this means is not changing your personality, unless it's horrible. And I'll be the final judge of that. It means taking what God gave you and making it more like Jesus. But Jesus, what is He? He's the perfect human being. That means that there's little bits of His personality in all of you. Does that make sense to you? If we all have the divine image of God stamped on us, then all of us in some way resemble God. It's our job to magnify that, to bring that out without trying to be like Craig while doing... Well, I think Craig does a good job of being like Jesus and that's an easier target to shoot at, so I'll just be like Craig. Have you all ever seen this in the church? Am I preaching to myself? 
Does not everybody want to be whoever the great man of God is? One day it's Kenneth Hagin, one day it's Oral Roberts, one day I'm scared to name anymore. Today it might be Hagee or somebody. I can't do it. I wasn't designed to do it. It's a yoke that I'm not meant to carry. You know what? I want you to imitate my way of life, but I don't expect you to be me. How sad we wouldn't get along. (laughs) This happens everywhere because we're looking anywhere other than in the mirror for how to develop our own lives. This is not a self-help message. What I'm trying to get you to understand is that God designed you a certain way because He wanted something from you. And when you start to embrace your design and learn what is useful in your life, you're a useful tool for Him. Watch this. Turn with me to Exodus 20. I preached 85 minutes last week. That was long, wasn't it? I'll do better this week. 84 and a half. I got a slight correction about six months ago from one of the brothers in the church. Good correction. You see, I've taken it to heart. He said, quit apologizing for preaching over if you're not going to stop doing it. I said, okay, good. In Exodus 20, look at the 25th verse. If you make an altar of stones for me... Adam, did I just unplug that? If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stones. For you will defile it if you use a tool on it. God did not want in His altars every stone to look alike. What happens if we have stones that are all about like this? You can't tell anyone from another and they're all stacked in a uniform way. The stone of this structure is the themselves. It's why we build this way with brick. By the way, the Tower of Babel was built this way, out of mud, brick. But if you have irregular shaped stones like these, only God could put these together in such a way that they would work. One honors the building materials and the other honors the builder. Aren't the beautiful things in life the strange peculiarities and the diversity? I mean, if every tree looked exactly like every other tree, how would you stand on a mountaintop and go, oh my goodness, this is beautiful? It would be dry, boring, mundane. Everything in the temple, everything in the tabernacle of Moses points to a divine presence honoring diversity. Whether you look at the coverings that are on the temple being multicolored, or you look at the people of Israel made up of every kind of person on the earth, It is meant to honor diversity. In Joshua, the 8th chapter and the 31st verse, Joshua builds an altar. And it says that he did not use any iron tool on it because the law of Moses said it would ruin or defile the altar if he did. So often what we are trying to do is turn out cookie-cutter assembly line Christians. We give you... This is number one, what you need to believe. This is number two, what you need to believe. This is number three. All of this encompasses who you are and who God is. There is nothing outside of it. Don't read books outside of it. Don't go outside of these walls. Don't do anything other than what's right in here because this is what is safe and acceptable for you. We call these boxes denominations. The funny thing about these boxes, though, is they were all started some point when somebody said, you know, I don't think God can be contained in this box. 
I'm going to go and find out more. Something new, something different. But they did a very human thing. As soon as they did that, they said, Now, we've got it. Everybody should look like me. God never designed every stone to be smooth. He wanted them to be undressed, uncut, so that some were for flying through the air for accuracy and others were for other things. Our job's to find out what that purpose is. Are you all tracking with me? Turn with me to Genesis 28. Adam, would you erase that? I have a feeling I'm going to want to uh, write some. Y'all in Genesis 28? Let's take a look at some different kinds of stones in the Scripture. Genesis 28, starting in the 10th verse. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. How interesting is that? A certain place. How did he know he was in the place? Was there a sign that says, Jacob, here's the certain place? How does that happen? I know. He bought a map and it said this way to the certain place. Is this an unimportant detail? The certain place? How many of you thought you were here because of a job transfer? Or just to be close to grandkids? Or because you met some crazy guy in a coffee shop? Or because your kids won't leave you alone if you don't come? I don't know why you thought you were here, but there are certain places in life that God intended for us to be. Why is this called a certain place? Because he found himself in the spot where God wanted him. Watch this. Taking one of the stones there... He put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth, but its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and He said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you were lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Is that a pretty important statement in the Bible, you think? Do you? You can talk to me. You think that's a pretty important statement? Would you say that's a big revelation in his life? Keep your finger there because we're going to go right back there. Well, let's talk about this. How did Jacob get to that certain place? Well, he was just led by the Spirit, right? Some of you are not no, some of you are not yes. Well, he had a church that pointed him to that certain place, right? He was running for his life from Esau because he had lied to his father and his brother was going to kill him. Do you think he thought he was in the will of God while he was on the way? Isn't it amazing how God can work through your mistakes? In a certain place that Jacob didn't know he was heading for, right? He's just running from his brother. He finds the certain verse that God wanted him at that moment where he could receive revelation. Watch what he calls this place. Then we'll examine the role of a stone. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought... Surely the Lord is in this place. 
Not a mile to the left, not a mile to the right. He was right where God wanted him to be. And I was not aware of it. Boy, isn't that the neat thing about serving our God? You can be pumping gas and all of a sudden Him whisper something in your ear and you're like, Lord, you're in Louisiana? You've got to be kidding me. What are you doing here? You can be almost anywhere and find yourself in the certain place that is God showing you, I'm with you, reminding you of the cold that is in your life. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is... Now remember, this was just a certain place. But now all of a sudden it's an awesome place. What was awesome about it? It's where God had spoken to him. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Now, this is really remarkable. You turn to the book of John, which we won't turn to, and Jesus in the second or maybe his first chapter towards the end, beginning of the second or end of the first, says, Nathaniel, I saw you while you were sitting under a sycamore or under a fig tree. Nathaniel says, wow, you did? Man, you're great. He says, you know what? I'm going to show you even greater things than these. What if you see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man? What was Jesus calling Himself? He's calling Himself Bethel, the gateway to heaven, the house of God. And the young man understood it because this story had been told over and over and over. But there's an interesting detail in this as we talk about stones. Five stones removed from a stream, smooth stones, used for precision and accuracy in striking a giant. Here there was a stone in a certain place that just happened to be used for a pillow. The man laid his head on it. But the pillow then became a monument. And it became something that oil was poured on. It showed an anointed relationship between God and a man. One kind of stone in the Bible is for precision and accuracy. Another kind of stone in the Bible, like the ones in an altar, show a uniqueness and adaptability for God to be able to put different people together in different situations. This stone shows about a relationship that happened in an appointed place and at an appointed time. Turn with me to Genesis 31. You there? In Genesis 31, look at the 18th verse. 17th verse. Now, let's go to Exodus 31. Eighteenth verse. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, He gave him the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. We have one stone early in this message that is smooth so that it's aerodynamic. We have another stone that also designed by God is rough, uncut, undressed, showing the adaptability and uniqueness of God. We have another that was suited to be a pillow and when anointed with oil was suitable to be a monument to a man's relationship with God. Here we have a stone that is inscribed by the very finger of God. You remember the circumstances under which Bethel happened? A man's in sin running from his brother because he lied. 
Well, the circumstances that this was given in, good, right? Mount Sinai, good, right? God's revealing His Torah. Did you know there was a second set inscribed? In the 34th chapter, in the first verse, there is a second set of stone tablets because the first ones were destroyed and broken. Well, what are we talking about? These stones are used as a representative that stood for all times that people experienced divine instruction. They testified about God forever. <coughs> they were carried around in an ark as a testimony called the Ark of the Testimony. Is there more than one kind of stone used in the Bible? But we don't want more than one kind of stone in the church. We think everybody needs to look like two or three different people. How many people do you think have been influenced by uh, that worship leader, the girl with the last name Check, Darlene? How many? How about Sandy Patty? How many people do you think were? But if everybody sounded just like them, how boring would that be, huh? How many people do you think were influenced by Ron Cannoli? Right? Everybody loves that song, Ancient of Days. But if every church service sounded exactly like that, what would you do if you were in Africa? How about Holland? We're always trying to put God into a quantifiable, very small box, even in our own lives. How many times have you said, this is the way that God uses me? This is what I'm called to, and yet been surprised by something that happened or didn't happen in your life? We need to be careful not to limit the divine. Turn with me to Exodus 17. We first started with a smooth stone for precision and accuracy. We moved to an altar of uncut stones. Thank you. Whose uniqueness and adaptability glorified God. Then we moved to a stone at Bethel who symbolized a relationship of an appointed time and place. Then we looked at tablets of stone, Moses' tablets, that show that man experienced the divine and testify about it. Now in Exodus 17, we see a different kind of stone. What's the setting? Israel's doing good, right? No. No, they're grumbling. And so their enemies attack. Are you noticing a pattern here? Have you ever thought that maybe because you zigged when you should have zagged, now God's not interested in you? think you missed the one you were supposed to marry? You ever think you married the wrong one? Don't answer that. Are you not where you're supposed to be right now? You think, oh man, now that I lied to dad and my brother's mad at me and won't speak to me, there's no way God's going to do anything with me. You never thought that you blew it? That maybe if you were more like so-and-so or so-and-so, you could do something for God? But because you're not, you can't? God designed us to be unique and He meets with us in those kind of certain places. He inscribes the second tablet if we mess up the first. He finds another unique stone to fit in with our gaps and our protrusions so it honors Him. He does that. That's what He does. He's not the God of the second chance. He's the God of the ten thousandth. Well, in Israel now, we have a situation where men are grumbling. So Moses has got to raise his hands. And when he raises his hands, Joshua, who is in the valley, begins to defeat the enemy, the warlike valley dwellers, the Amalekites. And as Moses' hands are raised, they win the battle. 
But because of human weakness and an inability to hold up the righteous standard that is God's law, he can't do it. So God appoints two friends for him, Aaron and Hur. And one holds up one hand, one holds up the other. That's praise and nobility on either side. But what's the 12th verse say? When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Is that a real noble calling, you think? How important. If you're these stones in the stream, right? And you want to be the one who's smooth and with precision and accuracy flies through the air and strikes Goliath in the head and knocks him down. But you didn't get picked. So you're thinking, well, maybe because I'm not so smooth like them, maybe I'm not eloquent of speech, God will take me and build an altar out of me. You didn't get picked. So you think, oh, wow, what a noble task. I am kind of broad-chested. I am kind of flat, square, built like a cereal box. Maybe God will inscribe on me His divine testimony with His finger so everybody will see it. But you didn't get picked. So now you're sitting around with all your other friends, stones but not getting stoned, just kind of hanging out. Says, oh, God says, I found a use for you. You're shaped perfectly for this one to put his butt on. <laughs> I can feel it. I found your calling, didn't I? And yet, if this stone is not there, Israel ceases to be a nation because the warlike people destroy them in the valley because Moses cannot hold up his hands. God has a purpose for each one of us. And how does Paul put it? Those that are... Uh, less notable are worthy of more honor, while those who are more notable may not be. Isn't that how Paul says it in Corinthians 12 and 13? Nobody wants to be the stone that is a seat, right? We might call this a ministry of helps because we're focused on being out front. But if you know who you are, Eric told me yesterday who he was in Christ, then you know your role fits perfectly and you're satisfied to have helped someone else who maybe got more glory for it, which we're not supposed to want in the kingdom anyway, win the battles. Was that stone important? I think it was. Don't you? All right. We got stones that are unique and adaptable and glorify God. We got stones that symbolize an anointed relationship and an appointed time. We have stones that have experienced the divine finger of God and testify about it. And now we have stones that are located in a position to lend support. How interesting is that? Have you ever heard a message that said we all need to be smooth stones? We need to flow in the Spirit until we all look just like... They don't say it, but what they mean is me. Hmm? Why does every televangelist have the same haircut? Why does everybody in a certain denomination talk with that same... Brother, I love you. At home, they don't talk like that. Why do people preach and pick up the exact same habits? And, uh, amen? Amen? Why do we do that? Because we see another stone and we like their design better than ours. We're uncomfortable in our own skin, so we imitate other people. In Joshua 4, we're going to wrap it up in just a minute. But I'm doing good. We started late. And I want you to know this. In Joshua 4, we see yet another stone. There is a flood 
God has said, I want you to cross the Jordan River into the new land. But it happened to be at flood stage. And in the fourth chapter and fourth verse, it says, So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you in the future when your children ask, what do these stones mean? It's funny how when I read these things, I think of different people. The Jordan River in this case is whatever was trying to overwhelm you in life while you were trying to do what God called you to do. The stones that serve as a sign are those people that were with you during that time that you can point to and when somebody says, hey, who's Eric Hill? Oh, Eric Hill is a guy I met at this time in my life and look what God has done in him. Oh, who's Wade Sutherland? This is who Wade Sutherland is. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? That's not a stone that's flying through the air killing giants, though, is it? It's a stone that came out of the center of a muddy, nasty river at flood stage, but now stands as a memorial for all time of what God is capable of. How beautiful is that? In Joshua 24, there's the most unusual stone you will find anywhere in the Bible. Turn with me there. Joshua 24. Y'all wake up for me. We got two scriptures left. Do you believe me? Two? Do you believe me? I'll only turn to two more scriptures. Guys, what I'm really trying to impress on you, and we're going to look at a couple of scriptures that I think will drive it home in a moment, but what I'm really trying to impress on you is we've been taught to emulate certain attributes of successful leaders. But the most successful people that you will ever read about, ever study, were quirky individuals in their own right. None of you want to be like Albert Einstein. I mean, you don't. the man forgot to put on his pants some days. That is not a joke. That is, uh, honest to God, not a joke. And yet he was brilliant. God designed him differently. None of you want to be like Winston Churchill, a drunkard, sharp-tongued. And yet he was a man of appointment who God designed for a specific task. You know, God has put us together in such a way where there are redeeming qualities in every individual who will seek Him. And it's our job to develop them. And what we spend most of our time doing is looking around us to see who we need to be like. And it's just wrong. This whole obsession with American Idol is trying to shove people into their own categories. You know, it, it, it's not about expression in every regard. I liked the kid Blake because he seemed to have his own personality. But what they really make you do is adapt to every person out there and imitate them. And something just feels wrong about it. It's less artistic. You know why? What you admire about the artists is that they have their own unique little expression, don't you? The kingdom is supposed to be a vivid mural that represents every facet of life. And you're part of it. You need to embrace your uniqueness and be excited about it. You know, in Joshua 24, of all the unique stones, I can't find one in the Bible, although there's a close second. Paul said that a spiritual rock followed Israel in the desert, but it wasn't called the stone. So anyway, 
Here we go. In the 24th chapter and 25th verse. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people. And there at Shechem, he drew up for, the, them, for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under an oak tree near the holy place of the Lord. Nothing unusual about that, is there? Hmm? Does anybody think there's anything unusual about that? How about this next verse? See, he said to all of the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you're untrue to your God. It heard all of those things? That's kind of crazy, isn't it? Now, Paul mentioned the rock that followed Israel. That's pretty crazy. Joshua's talking about a stone that heard their words and testified. But didn't Jesus say, don't say to yourself, we're Abraham's... I actually was John the Baptist. Don't say to yourself, we're Abraham's descendants. God can raise them up from these stones. Didn't Jesus, when He entered Jerusalem, say if these people were quiet, the stones would cry out? Why do you think they picked those topics, the stones, both John the Baptist and Jesus? Why do you think they did that? Why did He say, don't say to yourself we're Abraham's descendants. Out of these stones, God can raise that up. Because these were the most overlooked, mundane, likely to be used to do anything objects in the world. The most base earth element. And yet, John the Baptist and Jesus both said they could be used to glorify God. What could you not be used to do? If a stone that a man sits on becomes something that causes the battle to be won, if a stone that a little boy flies out of a sling causes a battle in Israel to be won, if a stone that for no other reason than you couldn't find another one like it, it was just unique, fit perfectly in God's altar, was acceptable for sacrifices, if some stone that just looked a little bit like a pillow became a monument forever to the house of God and the gateway to heaven, what could you be used for? Turn with me to Peter. 1 Peter 2. We're going to close with this Scripture and whatever I can possibly think of to say about it. Y'all there? When we talk about different classifications of stones, those that are smooth, those that are unique and adaptable, those that have special relationships, those that experience the divine, those that are divinely located for support, those that are put there as a sign, are those that record and witness things. Did you try to put yourself in a particular category? I mean, isn't that what we usually do? We say there are these five kinds of people, there are these four kinds of soils, there are, there are these personality types in the world, and you try to put yourself neatly in a category? I wonder why Peter chose these words. I just thought that this was really a beautiful way to say it. I have to find it. Where's Peter? Here we go. 2, 4. As you come to Him, 1 Peter 2, 4, the living stone. In all of those stones, did we read about any that are alive? No, they were inanimate, weren't they? Inanimate. 
But now we're talking about a living stone. One that has the ability to be in more than one place. One that has the ability to perform more than one function. One that has the ability to be any of those other stones. As you come to Him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God, precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, an offering of spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus the Christ. God took all of these different kinds of stones in the Bible and did amazing things with them. And all of you have the potential to be any one of them on any day. Why would you limit yourself to imitating a rock star? Why would you limit yourself to trying to be an NBA basketball player? You have all of the potential that God has inside of you. And all we have to do is find out what His purpose that He's trying to fulfill in our life is. And then be who we are. Not try to jump out of the stream. By the way, the rocks that flew through the air struck the giant. One of them, anyway, stayed in his head. You know what happened with that? Anybody know scripturally what happens with it? David cut off that head and carried it around like a trophy. But at some point, the flesh fell off of it and that rock had to fall out. And I imagine it found its way back into a stream to get a little more smooth, roll a little further down on God's plan and be picked up on some other day. Because that's the kind of stone it was. And that's what's useful for it. It didn't have to try to do that. It just ended up there, I'm sure. Our jobs in the kingdom are to seek our God and say, what is it you want from me? And then when we recognize we're in those certain places in life, and how will you identify them? Well, you're probably running from a brother who wants to kill you or having just broken God's commands or in some other place that feels dark to you but forces you to hear the shepherd's heartbeat and say, Lord, I'll do whatever it is that you want me to do. I'd be so happy to see daylight again that I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do and I'll do it to the best of my ability. And he will pull you right out of that bag, sling you around in the air, turn your whole world upside down you couldn't have dreamed would have happened with you. That's the God that we serve. That's what it's about. It's not about missing a turn and being off track for the rest of your life. Everybody in the Bible missed multiple turns. And you did probably this week. It's about being what God's called you to do, functioning within your design and loving it and embracing it, seeing it as a good thing that God made you a little shy, working to... Move beyond the limitations of that and not be captive to fear, but being excited that He didn't make you obnoxious like me. Looking in the mirror and seeing something of worth because God made you that way. Does that make sense to you, saints? Making yourself comfortable in your own skin. You know what Jacob's real problem was? He felt like to get a blessing from his father, he had to put on his brother's skin. It wasn't until later that he became comfortable as who he was. And that's where he found out he was in a certain place. And it was a gateway to heaven. Your gateway to heaven is finding out who you are in Christ. That's when the angels will ascend and descend on you, carrying out God's will in your life, fulfilling His purpose for your life. Y'all stand up and let's pray.